Mark's Gospel, chapter 1 this evening, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, <clears throat> more or less. And uh, if you're with us this evening and you don't have a Bible, just wave to one of the guys coming up the aisles with Bibles right now. <clears throat> They'll put one in your hand. If you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you tonight. Excuse me one moment. Thank you. When we, as we pick things up now in uh, verse 11 and uh, just speeding right through uh, the gospel according to Mark, uh, as we pick it up in chapter 12, we remember where we left off last week, and that was with Jesus formally beginning uh, his public ministry after three, uh, 30 years of uh, relative obscurity, uh, being raised in the city of Nazareth, and he comes to where John the Baptist is baptizing in the area of the Jordan River and is baptized, and not only uh, baptized with water uh, and present there, but as a part of that water baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him as a dove. He receives what we would call for ourselves the baptism with the Holy Spirit. It is the power for ministry. It is the power to live the Christian life. He receives that at the beginning of his public ministry, and the Father also testifying uh, his pleasure with the Son as well on that very scene. It is definitely uh, very much um, a mountaintop experience in the life and the ministry of Jesus. And then it's followed up immediately, which is the first word of, uh, of verse 12, by the temptation of Jesus uh, 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 by Satan. And immediately the Spirit drove uh, Jesus uh, into the wilderness. Immediate is, uh, immediately is a favorite word of, uh, of Mark. Uh, Jesus, uh, when this temptation occurs, you notice it's the Holy Spirit who drove him into the wilderness. It wasn't that he was wandering in the wilderness and the devil happened upon him. What happens here in the form of this temptation that he's going to face, a threefold temptation by the devil, it's, it's brought out most uh, completely in Matthew's gospel. It's an abbreviated uh, version of things here in, in Mark's gospel. But the Spirit drove him out into that Judean wilderness, and there he was in the wilderness for 40 days. We know that uh, he fasted during that 40-day period, and he's out in that wilderness tempted by Satan. And the idea isn't that, and this helps clarify a little bit from Matthew's gospel, you would think that uh, here he was in the wilderness for 40 days, not eating, fasting, and then, uh, then when he is at his absolute weakest, Satan comes to him uh, with the three temptations that he did against Jesus, that Jesus responded to with the Word of God. But the idea is that he, he was tempted by the devil the entire uh, 40 days, and, uh, and so tempted by Satan and, uh, and was uh, with the wild beasts, and uh, this is, uh, <laughs> uh, something came to mind, uh, it, it's not, this is not Dr. Doodle, he's not sleeping with him at night and they're constituting like down comforters for him in the evening, uh, and the, you know, as a demonstration of his authority over nature or anything like that, it's just speaking to uh, the remoteness 
much the, 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 and how uh, wilderness-like the Judean wilderness was at that time. And Israel, you go to Israel today and you can hardly believe, uh, as you read the Old Testament, the, the sheer variety of wildlife that was uh, existing, you know, talking about lions and alligators and so forth. And, and uh, you know, civilization has kind of crowded these things out at this point, though there is wildlife uh, to be found in their nature reserves. But uh, there was a much broader d- diversity of it in those days, and then the angels ministered to him. I think the passage speaks um, important things to us related to uh, the baptism with the Holy Spirit in our own lives and the beginning of, of public ministry. I think it's important, and in, in, you know, forgive me, but when, when I teach the Bible, whether on a Sunday night or on a Sunday morning, I always assume everybody is uh, 100% going for it with the Lord and, uh, and that everybody is serving the Lord, and, they re- and they, we view our lives that way. Uh, whether God has us working at IBM or He has us working for our own business or whatever, we're doing what we're doing as under the Lord, or our service that's found in, uh, in the community in the name of Christ overtly or within, within the local church. Uh, It is not, nobody can be like Christ, can be being conformed in the image of Christ without also serving the Lord. Uh, A non-service Christianity just simply does not exist uh, in the Bible. Uh, because it, it, Mark's gospel speaks famously of Jesus, saying that he, Jesus came uh, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and so, this is something that, that really speaks to, to all of us. I think it's important to realize in terms of spiritual uh, warfare and a spiritual attack that very often it will follow a mountaintop experience, as it did with, with Jesus here. I think that any time you have a sense that God has used you in some way, and there are just those times where uh, everybody who serves the Lord knows, wow, that was something, you know. You start witnessing to somebody and… Uh, and all of a sudden, verses are coming to your mind, maybe word of wisdom, word of knowledge coming to your mind, and so forth by the Spirit of God. And it's just like, wow, that was really something. And other times, you know, we might be a little more halting and all, and God uses all of that as well. But we usually know when the Holy Spirit has taken over a situation uh, in our lives. And to realize that uh, very often following a mountaintop experience, and maybe it's attending a retreat where God has made a breakthrough in your life or a camp of some kind, there will be a spiritual attack that will uh, come against us, and oftentimes it, uh, God will uh, even allow it as, as the Holy Spirit allows it here, and to be aware of that. I, it, I think it, it's miserable as we start to serve the Lord to get hit by this kind of thing, whether it might be in the form of, uh, of being elevated in pride and then saying a bunch of stupid things because we're so excited that God used us, or that on the other end of the spectrum, going down into kind of the deep depression and not realizing uh, that, you know, this is an attack of the enemy, that it comes against us in all kinds of forms as, as the Lord uh, uses us. And so, to expect that, whenever I have a, a sense that God has done something powerful, maybe in a teaching or something like that, uh, I never go uh, home excited. 
Uh, I go home expecting to get hammered uh, related to what it is that just happened. Almost always there's going to be some kind of a spiritual attack. And the same thing is true of the worship team or whoever's serving the children's ministry, wherever it might be in ministry. But to come to expect it and to recognize that the devil often picks a time of a a mountaintop experience to then come after us immediately after that. The other thing that I think is important is the devil is almost certain always to attack us when we are about to begin uh, our area of ministry. As Jesus is beginning his public ministry, when a person hits a place within uh, our lives as Christians, we become Christians, we settle the issue of his lordship. This isn't one foot in the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. We're going after it now. And, uh, and then now we begin to look and say, God, how do you want to use me? What am I supposed to do for the advancement of your kingdom? And then we start to take those kind of steps that there will almost always be uh, spiritual warfare uh, that will occur like that at, at the start of, of your ministries. And I think that also to realize that this kind of attack happens even as it does here in the passage uh, following the baptism with the Holy Spirit, where... Maybe when you're born again, in that moment you're born again, you're baptized with the Holy Spirit at the same time, or as happened with the apostles, you're born again, and then the baptism, this uh, receiving of the power to be witnesses happens some uh, period of time after that. But then when that experience uh, occurs within our lives, that there can be a spiritual attack against us. And I think that one of the reasons that the Holy Spirit allows that to happen is in order for us to discover the power. Uh, the power to uh, live a life like Christ, to be a witness to Him in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, as Jesus describes it in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's only when He takes us uh, and the Holy Spirit takes us into situations that previously we always failed in. Uh, We always fell on our face in these circumstances, and now He takes us out into the place that we've always fallen, we've always failed, and been unsuccessful, and He takes us out into the middle of some kind of a spiritual warfare, and we wonder what in the world God is, uh, the Holy Spirit is doing within our life, and then this time we stand. This time we draw upon a power that we recognize we've never known before. We've never come out of that kind of a temptation or that kind of a circumstance uh, victoriously, and now we have. And so often uh, this kind of a temptation or this, uh, this kind of a, a attack by the enemy is allowed for us to discover the reality of what has happened within our lives in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because one of the things about the baptism with the Holy Spirit is that Jesus said, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, and we do, as as fathers and parents. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? But uh, some of you, it would be very interesting if we did a show of hands tonight, but some people, when they commit their life to Christ, it's a very emotional experience, and they're weeping and almost shaking, and and it's just fabulous to be a part of it. And then other people, they just come and they weigh it, and and this is what God has said, and I can't find anything wrong with it. He's got me figured out pretty well, and uh, looks like Jesus meets the needs that I have in my life, and a person commits their life to the Lord, and it's unemotional altogether. 
But it just, it, they've, they've made a commitment that is just as real as the other. And the same thing happens with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's this uh, dramatic kind of experience where a person feels like, as I, you know, you read sometimes, it was like liquid love was poured over me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. I don't begrudge anyone that experience. That's great. However, the Holy Spirit wants to confirm that experience in a person's life. But sometimes we come up, we pray with one of the pastors or one of the others that are up in front. We pray for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And it's like we're heading out to the car and I can't feel anything different. It seems like the same old loser I was before I asked for. And, and so there's no emotion to draw on related to it. But when Jesus promises that he will give the Holy Spirit, this baptism with the Holy Spirit to us, when we ask, then we receive it. And then he puts us into some deeper water where we discover and realize we are now uh, accessing a power that we never knew before uh, within, within our lives. And so sometimes a temptation is allowed in, in all of that. Today's my mother's birthday. Uh, she's been in heaven a long time now. And uh, March 4th, and we always would remind it, she would remind us March 4th, just the aggressiveness of the day. March 4th, you know, she would tell us. And uh, I love my mom, and uh, my mom really struggled in life. She really did. And she dealt with mental illness, and, and it was hard for her. And as, a, you know, as kids, we couldn't understand it. And I don't think you can understand it. You can be sympathetic, but I don't think you can understand it unless you, you know, you've gone through it, unless you deal with it. And it's kind of like chemotherapy. You can try and explain that and what that does to a person's body who's never had it, but they'll never know until they, they would, you know, God forbid, be in, in, in the same place. And she struggled so much in life, and, and uh, I just have the utmost respect for her, and I, uh, the older I get, the more I realized how difficult every single day was for her. I mean, they, they did electric shock. They did every kind of pill and medication and, and everything. Life was really, really hard for her. But I, I didn't appreciate, I, I, I think about, uh, you know, a song that James Taylor did a, a long time ago, Fire and Rain, which, was, which is where he broke onto the scene with that. Uh, the story is that he wrote that about a girl he had met in, an, uh, in a mental institution himself. Uh, he struggles in this area in his life, and it's managed by medication. We see him on TV or wherever we might see him, and we don't know the private price that he pays as a, as a, as a human being in his struggle to to function. And he has a song in one of, one of his uh, songs, it, it, he, he writes the line, uh, I can't help it if I don't feel so good. If I had my way, I'd be shining like the 4th of July. I can't help it if I don't feel so good. And that's, that's the portion for an awful lot of people. And it was for my mom as well. She certainly didn't choose uh, to be in, in, in the kind of uh, pit that that was her life, and, and she loved the Lord uh, very much. But I remember when I became a Christian, and I really settled the issue of Jesus' Lordship in my life, and this was uh, full on, 100%. I was going to go for the Lord, and the Lord was opening doors up, and I was taking steps in terms of ministry. And, uh, and immediately after being saved and then ultimately baptized with the Holy Spirit, I used to come home from work and it would usually be on a day that there was going to be church that night. 
And I'd come home, and I just would be bombarded with this deep, deep depression and melancholy that I had never known before in my life. And I would st- all, I'd, all I would want to do is just come home and then just get into bed, and that was it. And this is just, was just so unlike me and who I was as a person. And, uh, and I had been raised in a home where things were difficult in that kind of a way. It was a very depressing kind of environment as a result and so forth. And I remember saying to the Lord, uh, saying, Lord, I mean, here uh, you know that I've never wanted, I've already paid my dues. I've already invested my entire uh, youth and childhood into this kind of a situation in, in, in the folly of, of how a young man can pray that doesn't understand life yet. And, and, uh, and yet, here is this thing that has come upon me, and it's come upon me not when I was out in the world and doing whatever I wanted. It's come upon me now that I'm a Christian and baptized with the Holy Spirit and beginning to serve you, and I don't understand why that would be. And he didn't give me like some kind of, you know, meanie, meanie, tuckle you farce, and well, that would have been appropriate for me. But, uh, but he didn't, you know, give me with something that kind of clarity uh, at all. But, but I, what came to dawn on me was he allowed a spiritual warfare into my life that I had never known before because I was taking steps of commitment to the Lord that I had never made before. And so the opposition comes. And I say all of these things, you know, from my experience and the experience of many other people as well, to uh, simply to say that this is normal and this kind of thing happens and it happened uh, in, in, the, uh, in the life and the ministry of uh, Jesus as well. And then in verse 14, we're told that now after John was put in prison, between verses 13 and 14, uh, there's a gap of about a year in uh, the narrative, Mark uh, jumps, uh, you know, being as he is, uh, jumps. I heard somebody speak uh, related to uh, Mark and teaching it, and he likened Mark's uh, gospel to going through a photo album uh, where Mark just kind of picks, points out this picture and says, this is what happened here, and yeah, here's a little bit about this picture, and here's a little bit about this picture, and a little bit about this picture, and he just jumps from one event to the other. And it's kind of like that in Mark's gospel. And so he jumps now to the next thing that, that he feels the Holy Spirit wants to talk about and uh, jumps ahead a year. And uh, this year that is skipped here is recorded in John's gospel. I think it's chapter 1, verse uh, verse 19, all the way through chapter uh, 4, verse 45, somewhere in there. And it in- includes Jesus' initial uh, contact with the disciples before he called them to follow him. It includes his time with Nicodemus. It includes his time with the Samaritan woman in John chapter 3, John chapter 4. And so he jumps over those events and declares that now after John was put into prison, Jesus came to Galilee, the northern region of Israel, and uh, which was to be the center of his ministry. Not the religious uh, uh, south that was headquartered by Jerusalem. The, the vast majority of Jesus' ministry happened up in the more rural uh, north. And while he, as he began his ministry there, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the idea of here between the time is fulfilled, he's saying that all of the Old Testament prophets 
prophecies concerning the coming of the Messiah, His first coming, are now fulfilled. I am here. The Messiah is here. And the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, there's a new kingdom being introduced into human history. If you want an option from the kingdom of man, the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of bondage to sin and slavery and oppression and all of these things, and you're at a point in your life where you're looking for, is there an alternative to the life and the nature that I was born into? And Jesus comes on the scene and declares to the Jews first, yes, there is another kingdom that is in this world, and it is the kingdom of God. And he invites people to become a part of that kingdom by declaring repent and believe uh, in uh, the gospel. And so the declaration here uh, to repent and then to believe in the gospel for salvation. Uh, The first word out of his mouth, really, so to speak, in terms of salvation, is the word repent. And it means to have a change of mind that produces a change of direction within our life. It really is, and I think we need to be careful of it uh, as Christians in the United States in the year 2018, we need to be careful uh, to continue to put a call to repent uh, as a part of the presentation of the gospel. And I exhort myself most of all, uh, in, in the age in which we live. It, it is where the world wants to take me in life and where God wants to take me in life. There are two, those are two entirely different directions. And when I'm walking before I come, become a Christian, I'm walking in one direction, and in order now to follow him and become a part of the kingdom of God, I've got to go in another direction. You cannot be saved. We cannot walk with God apart from repentance and, and it, it's, it's required, and, and that's why he says, repent and believe in the gospel. We're saved not on the basis of repentance. It's not a part of being saved. Uh, believe in the gospel. Believing in Jesus is how we are saved. It's a free gift. But repentance is required in order to be saved. It means I'm done going in my own direction. I'm done being in control of my own life, and I'm through with it. I turn from that, and I turn to you, God, now 100%, and I put my faith in your Son for salvation. And repentance is the lost word today as it relates to a gospel presentation to people. It's, uh, you know, very often we can simply make it, you know, you've tried your way, God's got a better way, or uh, come to know the Lord and, and uh, you know, it, and, um, and, you know, it, 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 it's only the blessings, only uh, the easy part, have your faith in the Lord and, and come to know Him, but uh, without mentioning this, this importance of of repentance, and I think that repentance, the hesitation related to repentance so often is, is that we, if we think and we say, here's the gospel, and you need to repent to uh, come to Christ, that we're going to scare people off. And uh, today in the church in the United States, we're very concerned that uh, we don't offend anybody uh, by and large, and, and we don't want to make Christianity seems as if there's any demands at all. You just continue to live the life that you're living already, and uh, just, you know, why don't you just sew up uh, your eternity by trusting in Jesus, and then come and enjoy the worship services between now 
and then. Uh, but, uh, but when a person, and, and I speak from my own experience, and I think many of you recognize it in your own life, there's nothing to be afraid of in terms of the word repent at all, because once a person is sick and tired of their own life, and sick and tired of the world and the decisions that they've made and sick and tired of the sin that they've engaged in and where life has ended up uh, under their own headship and their own direction, the word repentance is the greatest word that you can hear. The knowledge that there is another kingdom, there is an option to the life that you are living, and you have the privilege by the power of God and the invitation of God to turn away from the direction that you're going in and go in God's direction. We will, that will never be an offensive message to a person who's had their fill of the world and to a person who is being drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it's a great test, actually, uh, to determine whether a person has listening to the Holy Spirit and, and, and their uh, coming to the Lord as a part of the drawing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, never when the Holy Spirit is at work in a person's life will they ever be afraid uh, of the call and, and the demand uh, to repent in order to uh, follow uh, follow the Lord. And so, there's beautiful first words out of his mouth in uh, declaring uh, this invitation to the world uh, concerning salvation. And as uh, 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 here Jesus calls his first four disciples in verse 16, and it's important to remember as, as we're going to see, he calls Peter and Andrew and so forth in just a moment, but uh, to realize that this is not Jesus' first contact with these men. Again, uh, a year earlier, uh, he was recognized by them as the promised Messiah, but they had gone uh, then back up into the Galilee. Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time, gone back up into the Galilee, re-engaged in their livelihood of being fishermen, and, uh, and gone on about their business. And so when Jesus makes the call to them to follow him, uh, this is not about salvation. They've already trusted in him as Messiah. This is about uh, Christian service. And as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, the beautiful Sea of Galilee in Israel, he saw Simon, Simon's other name in the New Testament is Peter, going to become the Apostle Peter. He saw Simon and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net uh, into the sea, for they were fishermen. And so, uh, here's the call of, of Peter and Andrew. Uh, their livelihood is, uh, is uh, fishermen, and you see that when he calls them, they are active in their, in their uh, livelihood. They were uh, fishermen. And then Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. So he gives them the invitation, the call now to follow me into my call upon your life. It's wonderful that you're fishing and all, but I've got something uh, else to do. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And when he had gone a little further from there along the Sea of Galilee, he saw James, the son of uh, Zebedee, and John, his brother, who uh, also were in the boat, and they weren't casting their net, they were mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they then left their father uh, Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. And this kind of, uh, their immediate obedience is, is listed here. And we're told a little bit about 
the fact that this was kind of bigger than a family operation. They weren't leaving their father high and dry irresponsibly here in, in following after Jesus. But <clears throat> they, uh, they obeyed the call of Jesus, and, and they did so uh, immediately. There's a couple lessons here that I, I want us to, to have uh, sown into our hearts related to, to all of this. I think that the greatest thing that a person, a Christian can do for the sake of the fruitfulness of our ministries and our service uh, to God is to do exactly what Jesus called them to do first and foremost, and that is to follow me. I don't think there is any longevity in the Christian life uh, in a sense, I mean, our, our, our salvation is secure, but no longevity in a joyful, fruitful Christian life, and certainly no longevity in Christian service uh, unless it, it, we do what God has called us to do out of a love for Jesus and out of a relationship with Jesus. Uh, and nothing else will provide the motivation and the strength and, and the example that's required uh, to do that. The greatest, single greatest equipping that a human being can have for Christian service is, and, and for ministry is to walk with Jesus, to have a personal relationship with Him. The second thing that we notice here is their obedience to the call and, uh, they, uh, and, and immediate. It, it wasn't like this was easy for them to figure out. This, was a, this could have been confusing if you sat down and you tried to figure out the, uh, on, a, on an economic level what he's calling them to do. He's calling them to leave their livelihood. It's the family business that's here. And he calls them to leave the security of that, and there was great security in that, to now follow him to become a fisher of men. Who knew what that was when he's talking to them at that point? And yet they obey him because he had simply called them uh, to do that. I remember when I uh, quit the phone company and uh, to come uh, to Modesto. We had driven between, I had driven between Napa and Modesto for a year and a half doing the Sunday morning services before we moved over in 1985. And the Lord uh, just made it clear that that was supposed to happen. And in 1985, you might remember, uh, the United States of America was in a very deep re uh, uh, recession. And uh, nobody was quitting their jobs and nobody was quitting a good job. And when a mother of a friend of mine found out that I was quitting to go be a pastor in Modesto, she, she just, you know, spotted the, the outward folly of it immediately, and she said, uh, that, you know, think about that job that you have with the phone company. You'll have that till hell freezes over. And uh, not quite the thing you say to someone who's wanting to be a pastor, but I didn't, I didn't rebuke her. I understood what she was trying to say uh, to me. But the interesting thing is, is that Karen and I obeyed, and we obeyed immediately when the Lord called us to do that. And I won't get into the circumstances of, of what happened on the Napa side of things, but if we had not uh, taken that step when God called us to do that, we would have been swallowed up in, in a very, very difficult, messy situation. And I think that as a result of it, I would have become very, very cynical related to the body of Christ and never taken this step later uh, in my life. God knows what He's doing. He knows what the timing is, and I certain, we certainly have no regrets over that. Uh, we would have never met you uh, otherwise. And 
uh, and so the importance of obeying the call uh, immediately. I think it's also important to notice that it was their responsibility to follow Christ, uh, and uh, it was His responsibility to then make them successful in His call upon their lives. And, uh, and, and he did make them successful. 2,000 years of human history, the names of these men are, are household names even yet uh, within the world. But it, it, it drives home a point that I think can never be said. Even after I've walked with, these Lord, with the Lord all these years, I still need to be reminded of the same, the same truth as much as when I began to serve the Lord, and that is God isn't looking for ability, but He's looking for availability. And when God calls us to do something, He will do the equipping. You should, when God calls you to do whatever He calls you to do, you should be the most baffled person in the entire world because you know yourself better than anyone else. But you should never use that to talk yourself out of taking the step of faith that God calls you to take. As we take that step, He will then make us into what He wants to make us uh, into. He'll take care of the rest. They had, they're just fishermen. They've got no formal education, no seminary. They're not from Jerusalem. They live out in the sticks. Uh, nobody would have chosen the, the, the 12 that He chose ultimately. Nobody would have chosen these four. And, and the same thing goes for you and I. And yet God was going to do great things uh, through them. To me, in, in the longer I serve the Lord and walk with the Lord, to me the calling is everything. Uh, whatever He calls us to do, He will make us successful in that. Uh, but, it, but when He does, it will be so apparent uh, to anyone who knows us well at all uh, that God deserves all the glory and that He's doing all of it and, and, uh, and is the fact that uh, that, that this is a, a work of His uh, within our life. Another thing that I want to bring out in this, and I would be careful not to pass this up because I think it is very, very important for um, this time in church history uh, in, in the United States. I noticed that these men that God called, that they were hardworking. He called them while they were uh, working. Uh, and casting nets on the one hand, mending nets on the other hand. It is interesting. Uh, that, well, I'll get into that in just a moment. But I remember when, and this, I, I don't tell stories about myself very often, and, and here I am loading this whole sermon up with them, getting this out of my system so you won't hear anything else for another 30 years. But I remember when I first got saved, the, the, thing that I, um, the thing that I wanted to do immediately was to teach the Word of God. The Word of God was so alive and so explosive. I could not believe what I was reading in the book. I'd, read, I'd tried to read the Bible many times in my childhood, and I had a sense, a little sense of, of how powerful it could be, but nothing after I, I committed my life to the Lord and received the baptism of the Spirit. And, uh, and this, the Word of God so changed my life. It was so, so powerful within my life. I just wanted everybody to know what I was learning and what I was knowing. And, and because I was a new Christian and so young in all of this, I just assumed that everyone uh, who had a gift to teach the Word of God or desire to was also a pastor. And that's not true. You have many people who are, a pastor must have the, uh, be apt to teach, the Bible says. But you have many people, men and women in the body of Christ, 
Men specifically will keep it right there for, uh, to keep it uncomplicated, but uh, men who are called by God to teach, but He hasn't called them uh, to be pastors. And so I assumed that it was just going to be, a, you know, wanted to be a pastor and uh, what he would do. And I was chomping at the bit for something like that to happen. And the Lord took me through a, a very, very deep, long, deep trial in my life, and a very, very dark, dark trial until uh, he really, really tested uh, the, the, my motivations for wanting to do this. And I finally reached a point where I said to the Lord, Lord, I, I said to him, I said, Lord, I, I, I don't care about being a pastor or teaching the Word of God or any, any of those things. Uh, I just leave that with you. And I commit, if you choose to leave me splicing wires at the phone company for the rest of my life, I will be happy to do that for your glory, and uh, I, I just want you to know that. And I, I gave him, I gave him uh, my desire in that regard, and I absolutely uh, meant it and, and lifted that prayer uh, up to him, and, uh, and it was a great kind of refining uh, of things, a willingness to work, Lord, and to serve you, Lord, wherever it is that, that you want, uh, you know, to, uh, to put me, and, uh, and, and I'll glorify you there. Uh, I, and these men, as we've noticed, they're already saved, and they are, upon being saved, go back up into the Galilee, and they're continuing their occupation as, as fishermen. They're glorifying God. They're following Jesus and as best as they could understand it up to that time. And uh, as fishermen, when God called them when they were fishermen, they were glorifying God in, their, that, in that role as, as a fisherman. And they were giving themselves completely to it. And I think that one of the things that's important to, to notice about this passage is that uh, Christian service is no place for lazy people. God simply will not entrust uh, a ministry or, or spiritual authority and influence to people who are uh, lazy and unwilling to work hard. It is interesting, you know, if you, perhaps maybe you've read through the book of Proverbs recently, and uh, we think about the book of Proverbs as it condemns sexual immorality and drunkenness and so, and these kind of things. But uh, one of the things that is in the top five of things that is addressed within the book of Proverbs is laziness, is slothfulness. And God has a, a, a great distaste for that uh, in, in people, and He condemns it. And, and he certainly uh, isn't looking for lazy people to then pull into his ranks uh, of service. He's not that desperate. Uh, occasionally through the years, I've been approached by someone more than, uh, less than a handful of times uh, through the years where somebody comes up to me, and, and they, they don't always say it this way, but the, the implication is the same. Uh, they'll say, Pastor Damien, I've, I've been fired from my last three jobs, and I think it's God's way of telling me He's calling me into the ministry. And I, I'm always, I, I, when people say things like that to me, my mind doesn't work fast. I, I get my greatest answers an hour later, and uh, maybe you're that way too. But sometimes I don't know what to say uh, to, to a comment that's that, 
that misguided. And, uh, and, and at that point, literally, I'm, I'm looking for any way out of this conversation and any exit from the room that I can find. Um, more now in my older age, um, I will address it candidly with anyone that comes to me in that, in that way. But the fact of the matter is there is no place in God's work for unfaithful people or for lazy people. It's not a calling where you can just drop the ball and then shrug your shoulders and say, uh, oh well. There's way too much at stake in our Christian service and representing the kingdom of God, representing uh, the king that is God himself. In this, in this regard, and it's probably the reason I'm spending a little bit of time on this this morning uh, or this evening, uh, whatever it is, it's morning somewhere. Uh, maybe somebody's on the internet uh, watching it in the morning. God bless you. Thank you for uh, doing that. And uh, we're here to help you. But for most of us, it's this evening. But I want to uh, speak especially uh, to those of us who are in the room today who are uh, younger in age. And it isn't a, it isn't a thing where I'm, I'm uh, kind of pitting uh, the old against the young and the young against the old, but you've been fashioned by a world that didn't uh, fashion, the gen fashion the generations uh, before you. And I think that this is a, an area in which some of the spokesmen of your age group are, uh, you want to be careful with the message that they have in this regard. There have been uh, one or two uh, pastor's conferences that I attended, even within Calvary Chapel, uh, within recent years where um, uh, some younger man who is a pastor gets up and he decides to exhort all of the older pastors to, uh, you know, shape up. And by uh, shaping up, uh, the exhortation usually goes that we need to get out of our uh, offices and out of our studies and out of our counseling appointments and all of these other responsibilities that we've allowed to just kind of burden us. And we need to follow their example of hanging out in some local Starbucks with our laptop computer and just hanging out with the people. And that's the way to reach the world. And that's the way to build the church. It's all, you know, relational, bro. And, uh, and I just want to, a couple of times I've just wanted to throttle them from, you know, 30 rows back. When I hear that kind of thing, I have to uh, believe that they are either complete novices and, and just starting out, or they have had a church given to them in which uh, everything is paid for and the staff is already in place that allows them the luxury of thinking that they can spend hours in some coffee shop someplace and uh, that that's the way to serve the Lord and to, to, build, uh, to build the church, that they have that luxury. I, I have worked hard all of my life and I remember as a young boy, eight or nine years old, my twin brother Gabe, here's another story. I'm getting them all out of my system. And uh, we used to sell plastic flowers door to door in Napa, California in order to earn uh, money for our school clothes at that age. So we went to a store that was called Trade Fair in those days. I don't know if they had one in Modesto. And they used to sell plastic flowers there. 
and you could buy the small ones for three cents and the larger ones for five cents, and we would buy a whole big bundle of these and then go into a nicer neighborhood than the one that we were living in and go door to door and sell these flowers, the small ones for five cents, two cent profit, and then the larger ones for a dime, a five cent profit. And so we'd go up and knock on the door, and, and it just was something out of Dickens, actually. You know, we're looking like we're looking and trying to sell these flowers, and people would, they, would, they were baffled, absolutely baffled. Like, what are you doing here? And then we'd say, uh, we're selling flowers to earn our school clothes. And, and they would uh, go off now, their heart is broken or something, and they'd go, you know, and find a quarter somewhere, a dollar or something, and, and, uh, and then buy some number of the flowers and probably, you know, melt them in a, uh, you know, somewhere the moment we left. I remember when we were in uh, junior high and high school, we used to pick prunes for the same uh, purpose, and uh, we'd uh, pick prunes in Napa, and uh, 35 cents a box. It was a three-week harvest in August, and uh, we'd pick uh, 15 boxes a day uh, before the, the sun would get too hot, and we'd have to break off for the, that morning. We'd always be done by noon with the rest of the crew, and at the end of that, uh, end of August, before school would start, we'd be able to buy two pairs of Levi's and a packet of J.C. Penney uh, white T-shirts, a pair of dingo boots, and a white Pacific Trail jacket, and that was the uniform. That was what we could uh, afford, and, and we, we worked hard to earn those clothes. And I remember working for Pac Bell. I gave them the 10 best years that I knew how to offer them in, uh, in, in working for them. I worked as a telephone operator. I worked as a lineman. I worked as a cable splicer. I was offered management in every position that I held there. And yet, in all of these things, nothing prepared me for how hard the calling would be uh, as a senior pastor. And I would sit and listen to these sermons, these kind of exhortations that are even common, uh, you know, in blogs and, and all, even to this day. And I would think to myself, I could wish I could go down to Starbucks and just hang out and get down with the people whenever I wanted. And uh, even now, after 35 years, uh, I wish I could have that kind of, uh, of luxury, uh, but there are too many nets to be cleaned and uh, too many nets to be mended and too many nets to be uh, cast into the water. My advice to this kind of person, and this kind of person lives in every single one uh, of our hearts. He's a slackard. And my advice to that kind of a person for preparation and ministry would be to go and get a real job somewhere on planet Earth where you have to drag yourself home from work every single night, go to the refrigerator, get something out of it, heat it up and eat it, and then collapse in bed in order to get up and do the same thing again tomorrow and then see if you can find who you're working for if they will pay you to go to Starbucks and hang out, bro. That's the real world, and that's the real life. And if it's the way that the world is, the kingdom of God can be even more uh, demanding. And then uh, of, uh, I'm tempted to also want to say, and be sure and tell your congregation that you spend most of your time down at Starbucks. 
so that all of the hardworking people in your congregation who are busting it every single week in order to get by in their own lives, that they'll be so thrilled to put money in the offering toward the kingdom of God and the church so that you can live the life of luxury that they can only dream of and see what happens to the giving within your church. The model, I wouldn't even bring it up if this, this redefinition of ministry uh, it wasn't so prevalent today, and the idea that this is some kind of a hobby, some kind of a game, rather than uh, the life and death thing that it is in the world, the privilege of being able to represent God, to share the gospel, but then to also tend God's people. These people, these men, when God called them, they were working, and they were hardworking uh, men. And here he speaks about making them fisher of men and uh, fishers of fish, becoming fishers of men, menders of nets, becoming menders of men. And uh, I think it's fascinating, and I think it's the experience of all of us, that once we find ourselves settled into what God's call is upon our lives, and we realize, and it takes time, and we realize after trying two, three, four, five, ten different things, and we realize, no, I don't think I really have a knack for that. I think I was right back at number three. And you go back to number three, and God does allow U-turns, and you settle in on that place, and we realize, no, this is what God has called me to do and what he's gifted me to do, that once we get to that place in our Christian life is to then look back in our lives and, to, and looking back to see how long he has been preparing us for this very place and this very need within the world or within the body of Christ. And it's one of the most exciting things to look back and to see how hard God was at work in each of our lives even before we became Christians. And, and that's how long he had been grooming us for what he was ultimately going to place us into, the place of the greatest responsibility that we hold in life and the place of greatest privilege that we hold, and that is to represent the kingdom of God in some environment and, and in some way. And so there's tremendous lessons that are found, ministry lessons today, some of which I think are being lost some of them it's just good to be uh, reminded of here and, and uh, in the call of these four disciples. And then they went into Capernaum, and uh, Capernaum became the center of Jesus' uh, public ministry. Uh, you might remember that he was rejected by uh, his hometown of Nazareth, and uh, uh, Mark does not record that for us. Other Gospels do. And upon being rejected by Nazareth, he then goes to Capernaum, and Capernaum will be uh, the, the city right on the Sea of Galilee. It's one of the places that we visit on a trip to Israel uh, each time, and he makes that the center of his, his ministry, his Galilean ministry, but his ministry uh, overall. And then Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered uh, the synagogue and he taught. And there's that word immediately again. As soon as Jesus arrives in Capernaum, at the very next opportunity, at the very next Sabbath day, he attended the local synagogue. Uh, and, and made a beeline for it. A synagogue service, uh, the, the Jews were kind of accustomed, they'd come together 
They would meet for prayer. There would be a reading of, of the Jewish Scriptures, the Old Testament, a significant section of, of the Law and the Prophets, and then someone would be given the invitation to stand up and give an exposition or a teaching from uh, the passage that had uh, typically been read. It, it is, I think, it, very important to, uh, to notice that, uh, again, the first opportunity that Jesus had to attend the synagogue upon coming into Capernaum, He went through there, and, and he did not forsake the assembling together of the saints, and, and, and it's, he went to church is the, is the vernacular we would use today, and Jesus still goes to church today. Jesus still does not forsake the assembling together of the saints. He is with us tonight in this room, and whenever any group of people like us come together in this way, he attends, his, uh, he, he, is, he is present in, uh, in all of it. And so, uh, the, uh, the importance of it to him, and of course, the book of Hebrews, as I've already kind of quoted the verse to us, that we're not to forsake the assembling uh, together of the saints, especially as we see the day of the Lord uh, approaching or nearing the return of Jesus for the rapture uh, of the church. It is interesting in, in recent polling in terms of church attendance uh, that uh, when Christians are, uh, evangelical Christians are polled about uh, church attendance uh, and asked about, you know, uh, do they church, attend church regularly, that in the old days, a few decades ago, when that you would say, do you attend a church regularly, in a Christian's mind it would be, do you attend church two or three times a week? And now when the, the pollsters, Barna and others, uh, poll Christians and say, do you a church, attend church regularly, the idea is uh, two times a month. That's how far this is dropping down within the body of Christ below what is the example of Jesus in, in the Scriptures as it relates to church attendance. There's something about coming together, learning certainly about the Lord from His Word, but coming together and corporately worshiping Him in the, in the way that, that we do. This is not a good trend that is going on, and I would exhort myself and exhort you as well to resist it and to um, make regular church attendance a, a, a part and a characteristic of your Christian life. And I think that this pressure uh, to, to move away from meetings like this and uh, to just, you know, tap into teaching or tap into worship in terms of online or downloading studies and all of this, this is only going to get worse because people are going to look at it and say, I'm strapped for time. People are techno technologically very, very savvy, and, uh, and so I won't go. I'll just download it or I'll watch it a little bit later in the week. But we miss the dynamic of meeting with God and the way that happens in, in a room like this. And uh, the church service isn't supremely for me. It's supremely for God and to worship Him and ascribe worth to Him, to honor Him and to bless Him, and uh, this needs to be resisted. Sometimes I think that it's going to be like the Wizard of Oz and uh, sometime out in the future, hopefully not in my lifetime, where it'll be, uh, you know, it'll be the worship team will come out and do, and then someone like me, the pastor, will come out, and there'll be six of us in the room and uh, 800 people watching online. What a great dynamic that will be, won't it, in a room? And, uh, and, and so, 
the trends that are before us and the importance of resisting those trends. If I'm elderly or I'm sick and can't get to church, praise the Lord for all of these other options, but not for able-bodied, uh, able-bodied people. And especially as we think about service and looking after people and caring for people, how can I, from the distance of my computer, uh, talk with someone in the fellowship hall who has uh, just lost a child or lost a husband or a wife or whatever it might be. Now, this is too many dynamics uh, happening uh, in this way, and, uh, and so the, the importance uh, of this. I don't think it, certainly no one is going to be used by God uh, in, in any significant way who forsakes the assembling together uh, of the saints. It's just a, a mark of not so not getting Christianity and so not getting the body of Christ and Him being the head and us being the body that, that you're like in remedial school in terms of, of understanding uh, all of this. This is, uh, this is the ABCs. And so He went into Capernaum and went in on the Sabbath and He entered the synagogue and He taught. Well, this is very awkward, but I'm going to stop there at verse 21. Uh, before I go into verse 22, because what happens here is so important for us to spend a little bit of time on as well, and I don't want to rush through it. In fact, I'm embarrassed that I headed into verse 21 at all, and uh, uh, please receive my apology for uh, having, you know, set the table for the next time we're in, uh, in, in Mark's gospel. But uh, we won't repeat all of that. We'll head right into it. And the lessons that are here are, are just too remarkable uh, to, to, uh, to speed through. So I'd like the worship team to come forward and, um, at this point in time, and I'd like us all to stand together, and we'll close in prayer this evening. Father, we thank You for this, um, this little journey through the book of Mark and these snapshots, these portraits that You have provided to us of Jesus and, and the lessons that are found in each one of these portraits. And Father, I have, as You have well heard, shared a great deal from my own experience and, and w- concerning these verses. And what is taught here, but I know and I hope that all it has done is just stirred up those same memories within everyone in the room as well. Thank you so much, Father, for this glimpse and this instruction that you've given us of Jesus to look at these things, to look at them with some thoroughness, and, and to uh, check our own Christianity and, uh, and to, to examine our own tendency to make Christianity into something completely different than what it actually is, every bit as much as the Sadducees or the Pharisees did. Thank you for the time to be able to check everything against the plumb line of Jesus' life and your word. And we thank you in his name, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This evening, if you stand here and you are not